we're all sharing in this, and I think this is the one time where right I think we as a country this surge of online really lectures it's, by. Uh, it's actually given me a new sense of purpose, which I've always had, but it's raised it to another level of uh, a sense of responsibility, a sense of opportunity here, and a sense of reality that some of the concerns we had in healthcare prior to this are going to take a backseat to some of the things that we're going to need to be focusing on in the next year or two. You're listening to MIT Catalysts, a podcast by the MIT Club of Northern California. This is a second in a special series about MIT alumni who are healthcare workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. This episode is a compilation of three interviews that host Julia Yu recently did with cardiologist Stephen Howe, otolaryngologist Anique Aubin-Pouliot, and plastic surgeon Mark Dulong. Although each is involved in a different aspect of the pandemic, certain similarities tie their experiences together. In the first part of the episode, Julia chats with Dr. Howe about what it feels like to be on the front lines, the power of collaboration, and what we non-healthcare workers can do to help. Hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stephen Howe, for being on our podcast. Uh, you know, now more than ever, I, I think we are learning how important medical professionals are, not only for treatment, but also for leadership and guidance during this time. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you for that kind of introduction and, and the opportunity. So I was class of 92 um, at MIT, really enjoyed my experience there. And then after that, uh, went to University of Pennsylvania Medical School uh, for uh, my education, further education, and then did a, an a amount of training at New York Hospital while Cornell uh, in New York City, internal medicine, cardiology, and cardiac electrophysiology. And was fortunate to be uh, recruited out here to San Francisco in 2003 uh, to start a cardiac electrophysiology program in the area. And uh, have been working in the area uh, uh, since that time and work primarily at Sutter Health at uh, California Pacific uh, Medical Center. What is the morale like in the medical community right now and in San Francisco? I would say that overall, I think the medical community, the physicians, the um, nurses who are really the true heroes in this, as well as the staff, were resolute in you know our responsibilities to really care for our patients and take this pandemic head on. I will tell you, though, uh, beyond that sort of uh, that commitment, there is some fear and concern. Uh, there is fear and concern about uh, exposure. Uh, there's fear and concern about uh, being quite ill. Um, there's fear and concern about proper therapies or infecting loved ones. Being a leader um, in my medical group within Sutter Health, we, we do try and recognize everyone's commitment um, but also recognize uh, that they do need uh, to take care of themselves, take care of their families. Uh, a lot of our staff have trouble uh, with uh, children being home uh, and schools being closed uh, because they have to balance sort of work and life. But I think overall, there's a commitment uh, balanced with some fear and apprehension uh, as we sort of expect a surge to occur in the next couple of weeks. What has the collaboration been like uh, across the medical community right now? We are learning from each other. Unfortunately, we're also learning on the fly um, uh, about how this virus uh, continues to transmit, um, who is at risk, uh, as well as we uh, furiously try to determine and do studies about therapies, and then ultimately, really what we need is a vaccine. 
but I've been on uh, webinars with physicians in China describing their experiences, uh, describing uh, their approaches. Uh, I've been on listservs and, and sharing information uh, with physicians in Italy as well as New York where I came from and trying to share best practice. Uh, I think all in all, it's been one of those experiences that's been very uniting, unfortunately, under uh, very difficult circumstances. What can we do as uh, lay people who are staying at home? Like, how, how can we help? So I think if you're at home, that's, you're really doing what you can do to help. What's interesting about this virus is, is that it's highly infectious. So that's number one. I think uh, really listening to and, and abiding by uh, the social distancing component. The second, I think, would be if there is a ability to share and donate some of this, some of these uh, protective equipment uh, to facilities where we are to take care of patients, that can be very useful. I think the third really also is to not panic and, and, to, and to be calm um, and trying to listen to reliable sources of information. You know, I think the other thing is we are um, participating across the world in a number of trials of drugs as well as vaccines. And uh, clearly, we will need people to volunteer for those as well uh, to try and help determine what really are effective and what really are safe uh, therapies as well as vaccines eventually for this uh, for this virus. So, I think a, a combination of all of those things are really important. Not to panic, follow the social distancing rules. Um, be careful about who you listen to and and um, and what they're recommending, and then eventually, you know, participate in in the process of us, you know, winning this war against the virus. Is there a a source of truth that uh, medical professionals are using? So I think that um, we have looked at a couple. Johns Hopkins um, has a, a very good source of information, and you can sign up for a daily email, uh, an update of some uh, adjudicated information. Uh, so I think Johns Hopkins and, and what you see on CNN is sort of Johns Hopkins numbers of worldwide cases and US cases. From a modeling standpoint, um, there is a group called IHME. Uh, I look at a website called covid19.healthdata.org um, slash projections, and it does offer projections per state over time, uh, depending on certain things that are happening. And then University of Washington uh, also has additional resources. As a specialist, how has your day-to-day changed amidst this pandemic? So, you know, it's interesting. You would think as healthcare providers, we'd be overwhelmingly busy. However, what actually a lot of physicians, physicians' offices and practices have done what a lot of other businesses have done. We've really shut down our practices. Um, And we've done that for two reasons. Number one is we don't want to consume PPE um, because anyone coming in potentially could be infected. And we want to preserve that for the hospitals and for the very sick. The second is we don't want to expose patients who are at risk, have other medical problems, particularly in my field, cardiovascular issues, to um, having to take a subway or, well, we don't see many Ubers nowadays, or coming to a doctor's office and getting exposed. And so we're not really seeing many patients in person anymore. 
maybe one positive uh, thing that comes from this is that we are now able to do televisits and get um, reimbursed for televisits. And so we are doing a lot more of televisits and video visits with patients to sort of make sure that we're managing some of the chronic issues and again, trying to keep them out of the hospital, more importantly, um, the ERs as well as our offices. And so we're providing a lot more remote care, um, but from a business standpoint, a lot of our business has also been decreased significantly. Uh, we're, we've canceled a lot of elective surgeries, elective procedures, all with the idea that we're all part of this together. And by doing less, we're hoping, hoping that we can save more lives. And so um, interestingly, uh, doctor's offices and financially are struggling just as other businesses are struggling. That's a really interesting point. There's this whole debate about balancing livelihoods versus lives. And uh, I, I love Governor Pritzker's quote where he said, ultimately, you know, if you if you don't have a life, you, you don't need a livelihood. So that's very important and interesting to hear about that. We're all we're all sharing in this. And I think this is the one time where I think we as a country and we as a society are really banding together and taking personal risk sometimes in the healthcare field, uh, unfortunately, all sharing in a financial downturn for public health. We, we are do, all doing this together to save lives and hospitals are feeling the same. Um, and so uh, we believe, you know, that our government is doing the right thing by supporting small businesses and, and supporting uh, the public. And I believe some of that is also there to support the healthcare system to get us through. Uh, get through all of this uh, and get out the other side. The other thing I think that this this pandemic does, like I said, it brings us all closer together is we've seen um, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of collaboration, a lot of other companies getting involved in, in helping us manage this, whether it's making PPE or big companies making ventilators there are uh, clearly, um, you know, biotech companies working on cures and diseases or the Buck Institute now sort of studying things. You know, I would say, and, and again, one of the things that I really enjoyed about MIT is there are so many people smarter than I, and we were able to sort of work together. Um, and uh, it, it became that pot in which, you know, a biologist could talk to an engineer, could talk to a material science person or an, an aeroastro uh, uh, scientist, and we can look actually at a problem and answer it from different perspectives, and we can share um, best practices, or uh, they can provide uh, an idea that otherwise would have um, not been conceived of because you've been sort of stuck in, in viewing it from, uh, from another perspective. So. I would say as a community um, of MIT alums or a community of scientists or just being just part of the human race, there, these types of things I think are opportunities for us to come together um, and work together and, and move forward. That was Dr. Stephen Howe, MIT class of 1992 and medical director of the Sutter Health Bay Area Cardiovascular Service Line and California Pacific Medical Center Cardiac Electrophysiology Laboratory. Next, Julia speaks with Dr. Anique Aubin-Pouliot about the changes she's seeing in her own specialty due to the pandemic and which changes she expects to persist even afterwards. 
We have Dr. Anik, who used to be uh, my classmate at MIT, so we're really excited to have you here today. Tell us a little bit more about your specialty and what hospital you practice at. Yeah, so my name is Aniko Benpulio, and I'm um, a fifth-year resident, a chief resident at UCSF uh, in otolaryngology and head and neck surgery. Um, so dealing with the ear, nose, and throat and kind of head and neck cancer and all, all, uh, all upper airway issues. Great. And what has the sentiment been like in your hospital and just in your community right now? I think the sentiment has been very mixed, a lot of kind of roller coaster of um, of emotions and of, of uh, kind of different responses to what we've been dealing with. At the very beginning, I think there was definitely uh, uncertainty as to what was to come. And obviously, that's still the case. But I think with the fact that we've seen the the curve flatten a little bit more in San Francisco, it it kind of reinforces the things that we've been doing well. And I think the hospitals have um, really kind of done a good job of uh, increasing the amount of resources available for physicians. So I think overall, right now, there's a little bit more hope than there was a week or two ago. From the standpoint of my subspecialty, um, there's been a little bit of increased worry about the types of procedures that we do, um, which includes things like scoping the upper airway, the nasal cavity, um, a lot of surgeries that happen in the sinuses and the throat, which in China uh, were shown to have particularly high risk of transmissions to healthcare workers because you're aerosolizing particles from the nasal cavity when you're drilling in the sinuses or um, when you're opening up the airway, like for a tracheotomy. And so because of that, dealing with the appropriate protective equipment has been definitely a, a priority of ours and, and trying to figure out how, you know, what what is the appropriate equipment for these types of surgeries, um, which do continue to happen because a lot of them are emergencies. A lot of cancers growing in the throat or um, in the airway are, you know, continuing to happen because it's not something that can wait a month or two until this um, kind of results. Wow. Wow. So I guess this is this has impacted your specialty in your area quite a bit then. Curious how your day-to-day has changed. Yeah. So I'm finishing up residency in, in June. And so uh, the way that residency works is very hierarchical where, you know, you start out taking a lot more call when you're a second year resident and a third year resident. And as you finish up, you're focusing more on your surgical skills. So my last rotation was going to be all elective cases. So doing a lot of sleep surgery, laryngology, kind of facial plastics, rhinology, and all of those cases now are currently canceled. So um, I've gone back to being more kind of a a younger trainee where I'm taking a lot more night calls, responding to consults in the emergency room, responding to consults on the floor, um, taking care of floor patients, and then doing a lot of cancer care, a lot of head and neck cancer care. That's uh, what's continuing to need to happen right now. Um, so I, so things have definitely shifted at what I've been working on, but still in the realm of what I'm comfortable, still in the, the kind of head and neck world. I know a lot of doctors in New York, you know, have been completely redistributed to a different field. And um, we've been, 
in a way lucky in San Francisco here thus far where that hasn't been the case. There hasn't been a, a huge surge in, in COVID positive patients. So we've still been staying in our, in our own specialties as of now, um, but just kind of relocated to the more urgent uh, consults and, and surgeries. What lasting impact do you think this will have uh, on healthcare? I think that's a tough, that's a very tough question. Um, I think that there are things that we are learning from this virus that probably apply to, you know, a lot of other viruses. I mean, even just the the idea that when we perform sinus surgery, we aerosolize viruses and bacteria from the airway and potentially should be using better protective equipment anyways and overall not just for um, this particular virus we're seeing this surge of online lectures by uh, faculty surgeons and physicians around the u.s to all the different residents and so there's a lot more collaboration between all the different hospitals and the different residency programs to continue education of residents but also to collaborate on different things that the different hospitals are doing and how to improve care at the different hospitals. So I think the increased collaboration is going to be key. I think, you know, that can both continue to improve patient care as well as resident education. So I think that's something that I hope continues Um, in terms of how it impacts the overall healthcare system and society. I think that's, (laughs) we'll have to see. That was Dr. Uben Pulio, MIT class of 2009 and a chief resident at UCSF in otolaryngology and head and neck surgery. In the final segment of this episode, Julia sits down with Dr. Mark Dulong, MIT class of 1982, and a plastic surgeon and assistant physician-in-chief at Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in Santa Clara. Mark, thank you so much for speaking with us. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you're practicing right now, and your role in this whole COVID crisis? Absolutely. So I'm a plastic surgeon by clinical practice, but my role actually in my medical center, which is Kaiser Permanente Santa Clara Medical Center, is as an assistant physician in chief. Uh, So I'm uh, actively involved in our response to the COVID crisis in our medical center. My journey through there, of course, started out largely clinical and over time has evolved into more and more administrative roles. Uh, I oversee all of our operating rooms, so our response for COVID response related to procedure and operating room capacity and which cases we should be doing or have been under my purview at my medical center. Uh, I oversee all of our specialty care, so similar things and coming up with our strategy uh, locally for how we should be providing care in different ways to keep patients as well as staff safe. Working uh, on our space planning for our medical center to determine how to expand bed capacity uh, to be able to accommodate the expected surge of patients as the COVID crisis evolves. Being in a leadership role right now is both exciting as well as daunting, Um, but it's really, to be honest, it's actually been a privilege and to be doing what I've been able to do and to actually see and witness firsthand the response of healthcare providers and the uh, community at large to the situation we find ourselves in. So you're wearing multiple hats right now, both administrator as a leader, but also as a specialist and a doctor. So what has been the biggest challenge and surprise so far? And could you also share with us any uh, silver linings? 
Yeah, so the biggest surprise, I think, was just how quickly we've had to respond to this and how quickly the world has changed for everybody. Uh, and that's not unique to being in healthcare. I think uh, for everybody, uh, whether it's the sheltering at home, the social distancing, uh, all of those things have kind of transformed people's lives much more rapidly than anybody could have imagined. Uh, so that has been kind of, I, I guess, the biggest surprise and the biggest challenging. And I think what's been inspiring or the silver lining to that is how readily people have adapted to that, how supportive uh, people are to the healthcare community. Uh, and within the healthcare community, what has been really, uh, I wouldn't say surprising because I've seen it in other crises on smaller scales, is how uh, well people step up and not just in their own roles, but willing to help out in expanded roles. As an example, uh, in specialty care, one of the earliest actions that we took in my medical center and organization was to identify ways of continuing to provide care without bringing people on campus. So what we did was we rapidly leveraged um, what we're calling virtual care. So expanding our capability to leverage telephone visits and video visits and uh, email uh, exchanges to still provide timely care to patients, but keep them off campus unless they absolutely needed to be physically seen. Um, and that dramatically transformed. We went from doing about, in our medical center anyway, about maybe three, uh, I would say actually about 12 to 13% of our new specialty referrals uh, virtually to going up over 90% in a matter of a week or two. Uh, so that that kind of transformational uh, transformation in our care delivery system uh, out of response and out of necessity has been dramatic. Thanks, Mark. I know that um, your hospital is one of the centers to see some early cases. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that's been? Yeah, so Santa Clara County for California was actually the first county that was hit with this. And uh, again, within our organization, my medical center and one of my neighboring medical centers was one of the first ones to start seeing uh, these patients. So we went into action very, very early uh, to both make sure that we had had a system in place to identify these patients very quickly so that we could get them to the right level of care. And uh, perhaps more importantly, recognizing that identifying them quickly was really important in keeping our staff safe and keeping them from getting exposed. Uh, one of the early things that, beca that became evident as, as a critical need was making sure that we had the right personal protective equipment, which means, you know, in our context, uh, the right masks, the right eye protection, the right gloves and gowns. Uh, available to the folks who are going to be most likely to encountering these patients first. Uh, so that was one thing that we did. So particularly for our emergency department, our hospital-based specialists, and our intensivists. Uh, but more importantly, we started you know, developing very quickly mechanisms to uh, try to identify these patients before they hit the medical center. So uh, we ramped up the messaging to all of our patients at large. Uh, we ramped up our what we, our call center uh, to be the first point of contact. So the patients were, were uh, directed to contact them first before just showing up at the medical centers to identify if they had symptoms. Uh, we started doing putting systems in place at our all the entrances to our medical centers and hospitals to do some screening for coughs and fevers, uh, again, to try to identify patients that may uh, have symptoms that we then needed to direct to the right level of care and keep them from walking through our medical centers unprotected and exposing other people. So all of these things we put in place very, very quickly. Uh, within the medical center, when these patients did receive care, again, same thing. And to be honest, that's not new. I mean, we've taken care of patients with tuberculosis and other infectious diseases in the past. So this really isn't unique in that regard. Guard. What has been unique is the amount of knowledge that we didn't know when this first started. Um, at the beginning, we were 
protecting people as this was an aerosol-borne disease uh, to be extremely cautious. And then as the CDC guidelines and as more knowledge came out that drop of precautions were appropriate, we had to update uh, what we were recommending to staff. And uh, that has actually been really confusing to people. The information uh, changes at least daily and often hourly. Uh, so we're constantly having to update our policies and uh, education and get that information out very quickly. And that has been inc- incredibly difficult and at times head spinning for folks. So coming up with communicate, excuse me, communication strategy in the organization has been particularly important um, and challenging. And I think we've done a pretty good job with it. Is there anything that we could do as private citizens and tech companies and other industries? So, so partnering with uh, healthcare professionals to kind of figure out what their needs are and uh, seeing how your uh, your industry or your peers or your contacts can actually help. So, uh, you know, partnering, you know, we're looking at partnering with local industries here in Southern California, I mean, in Northern California to try to figure out how to, how to address some of the face shield problems that we've had, you know, the sources of face shields, which are really important for eye protection for care of COVID patients or possible COVID patients. Uh, that supply was rapidly dwindling. So uh, what we've learned is we developed patterns and we've engaged our carpenters internally, for example, to start uh, making uh, disposable face shields that we can use. We uh, came up with patterns that others outside can actually make. So we, we ramped up our production not through the usual sources of things like that. We've done the same for uh, what we're calling level one cover your cough masks where patterns have been developed so people can go out and actually sew and make their own. Uh, they're not medical level masks, but they're the appropriate masks for folks to wear if they're symptomatic to cover their cough to help prevent uh, infection of others if they're sick. Um, so looking at ways we can ramp up the production of medical grade masks, I think would be incredibly helpful because those are in short supply, whether they be isolation masks, which are used for direct patient care of infected patients, uh, surgical masks for those like myself who need to operate on patients, uh, that maybe that, you know, you know, surgical masks are just a standard uh, universal precautions, and those are disappearing. Uh, the surgical gowns are now being threatened. So coming up with ways to possibly how sew fabric gowns, for example, that can be reprocessed and reused. Uh, these are some obvious things that we would need some help. The N95 respirator masks, which are really important for high-risk procedures in infected patients, those are also disappearing and the sources are drying up. Uh, we most many of those have been sourced from China in the past, and they're just not available. Uh, ventilators, you know, uh, working with industry to try to repurpose to, to help uh, manufacture more ventilators uh, because those are in critical short supply. So I think those kind of partnerships between to kind of create new sources of um, material, products that since the usual sources have dried up would be incredibly helpful, kind of like a hackathon innovation mindset to doing that. Like I said, we've done it with face shields. I'm hoping that we can do something similar with gowns and other protective materials, but do it in a rapid fashion because the need is here now and the need is going to become increasingly critical in the very near future. I know we're still in the midst of it, but when it's all said and done, how will this experience change you as a doctor and a leader of your hospital? Yeah, it's it. It's actually given me a new sense of purpose, which I've always had, but it's raised it to another level of um a sense of responsibility, a sense of opportunity here, and a sense of reality that some of the concerns we had in healthcare prior to this 
are going to take a back seat to some of the things that we're going to need to be focusing on in the next year or two. Uh, you know, the reality after this is going to be quite different than the reality that we were struggling with before. You know, in my medical center, I had the privilege in my leadership role to be uh, focused primarily on how we can continue to make things better, how we can improve timely access to care, which is one of my focus areas, how we can improve uh, efficiency, operational efficiency, and cost savings in our operating rooms uh, while optimizing the care delivery experience. You know, uh, I think our focus as leaders is going to dramatically shift after this. We're going to have a long recovery phase. Uh, just looking in the operating room, the number of patients that we have postponed surgery for, how are we going to be able to provide that elective surgery when COVID is no longer an acute concern, but we now have you know, a, a huge number of patients who have now been waiting for surgery, but we have not extended our capacity to provide it. And the resources and supplies that we're struggling with now, those are not all of a sudden miraculously going to be available when the COVID surge ends. Uh, we're still going to have the supply chain challenges that are going to interfere with our ability to provide the kind of care that we just took for granted in the past. So I think there's still a lot more problem solving to do in the future. And the leadership challenges and the leadership opportunities are going to be quite different than what we were tackling prior to this. Thank you so much, Mark. I know that it's a busy time and we really appreciate you taking a minute to uh, talk to the MIT Club of Northern California. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope everybody will do what they can to to stay safe. Uh, We will get through this, uh, but it is going to take everybody uh, to do it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of MIT Catalysts. We hope you found it as valuable and insightful as we did to hear from MIT alumni on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. As Dr. DeLong said, there's a lot more problem solving to do. So if you want to get involved, make sure to keep an eye out for MIT community events through your local alumni chapter. Here in the Bay Area, on Wednesday, April 22nd, the MIT Club of Northern California will be hosting a virtual event to tackle the problem of the N95 mask shortage. For more information and to register, please visit www.mitcnc.org slash events slash hacking the PPE. That's mitcnc.org slash events slash hacking dash the dash PPE. Also visit www.mitcnc.org slash COVID-19. That's mitcnc.org slash COVID-19 to stay in the loop about next steps after that event and to keep an eye on upcoming events. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Fisher-Huang. Special thanks to our guests, Stephen Howe, Anik Uman-Pulio, and Mark Dulong. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stay tuned for more upcoming episodes about MIT alumni involved in the COVID-19 pandemic, and we hope you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy. Take care.